Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on FUBAR Radio. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Politics Uncensored. I am Ali Milani, your host, uh, and I am delighted to be joined by Nicola Thorpe uh, today. Coronation Street actress, Metro column writer, equalities activist. Um, you may have seen a bunch of her amazing work, including um, in 2018, she took part in recording uh, a Christmas song in aid of Great Ormond Street Hospital. Uh, and last week she spent, last weekend she slept on the streets of Blackpool to raise money for homelessness, charities and street life in Blackpool. Thank you so much for coming, Nicola. Thank you for having me, Ali. That's uh, quite the introduction. I forgot about that charity single. Yes, yeah, it's uh, it's it's out there for people who want <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah, I think it's I, called Rocking with Rudolph. I, 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 don't, I wish I had it now here <laughs> so we could, we could have a little music edition with Nicola Thought, but we don't. Uh, we've got an incredibly important issue and a timely issue today. So mm. the theme of today's episode is going to be on the NHS uh, and... Uh, the crisis in our healthcare service. We've got Ben Zaranko joining us uh, from the Institute of Fiscal Studies, Sebastian Rees from Reform Think Tank, and we've got two amazing doctors, Dr. Amy Atwater and Dr. Chanel Smith, joining us. But before then, let's talk about some of the key issues in the press this week. So first, we're going to talk about Kemi Badenoch, who is considering changing the Equalities Act to allow organizations to bar trans women from single-sex spaces and events. The change would redefine sex in 2010 in the 2010 Act to specifically refer to legal protections for biological sex. And it's a move that has been backed by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, which mm. has come under fire for many things, including its refusal to act on Islamophobia. Nicola, what are your, what's your views on, on this latest move by Kemi Badenoch? Well, the Equalities Act is all about protected characteristics. And as it stands, being trans or having your gender identity is a protected characteristic. This is just an attack on trans people. Um, to, and the gender critical movement love to take things to their hypothetical extreme. So the argument at the moment, right, is, oh, well, if we let trans women into women's spaces, then a man can just put on a dress and walk into women's spaces and abuse us. Okay. If we take Kemi Badenoch's, um, what she's put forward to its hypothetical extreme, and you're only allowing people who are um, ident who are born a certain sex into single sex spaces rather than trans people, then a man, a biological man, could just walk into a woman's space and say, I'm a trans woman, what are you gonna do? How are we possibly going to police this by checking people's genitalia when they go into certain spaces? It doesn't make any sense and ultimately, it stops trans women from being protected against misogyny. But this is a constant move. This government seems to be constantly attacking trans people. Yeah, because for them, it's an easy issue. Trans people existed for decades, hundreds of years. Uh, they, they were here. They were around. They existed 20, 30 years ago. Even Theresa May put forward self-identification when she was Tory. Um, well, no, she, when she was uh, equalities minister. Now, how... Have things changed so quickly over the past 10 years? And we know why. Because they have to fall back on the culture wars argument rather than political policy. If rumours are to be believed, this is part of their election strategy. So they think that they can. this culture war mm -hmm. is a key dividing line between them and Labour. But if you look at what Keir Starmer has said and Labour have said, they've not come out in opposition to this move. No, they haven't, which is obviously very somebody on the left and somebody who is very staunchly supportive of, of equal rights for, for all it's disappointing however I also understand that if you are going to get into power in a country that is edging or leaping further and further to the right then to come out on certain issues like that to support mm -hmm. trans people openly as they should be um, that leaves them sadly open to so much criticism mm. yeah, every interview that he but, does he's but, asked what is a woman but do you not think well do you not think this is an issue of i always come back to this and i spoke about this last week on the show of political courage yeah of course one of the things that i think we need to demand of our public servants mm. is that they make the cases of the things that they believe in the yeah. things that are the right thing to do yeah. and make that case to the public if keir starmer doesn't make the case mm. rishi sunak certainly isn't going to make the case yeah then the public discourse around this will just circulate on the same issues. I, yeah. I thought the same thing was true of immigration. Labour was terrified to talk about it. The Tories had their line on it, and it just meant public consensus shifted further and further right. I mean, the frustration I have is 
if the leader of the opposition, and not just him, but politicians across the progressive, the left, whatever you want to call it, if all they do is just spout what they think is popular, anyone can do that. I know. It's not leadership. Anyone can do that. Um, so that's that's unfortunately one of the, one of the main issues that that we're talking about today. Um, the next is on the theme of the show, the NHS. So thousands of children are experiencing unacceptable long wait lists for the NHS for NHS treatment, facing a lifelong impact on their health. So last year, nearly fifteen thousand pediatric operations were cancelled, and we are now facing an NHS waiting list that is over seven million people. There we go. Thirteen years of Tory cuts austerity you know i i hate that so often when i do you know political commentating i'm just the the lefty loony the labor supporting anything anti-tory no if the tories were doing a good job i would vote for them Mm -hmm. um what they stand for is obviously ideologically opposed to what i believe in but they're not doing a good job it's been how can you do you know what it is it's this it's this veneer of competence that yes. is now being destroyed that's the difference i think i think you're absolutely right you know forever i um i had a conversation with john mcdonald during his term as chancellor and one of the things he said to me was you know yes there's a huge ideological battle going on but what the tories have done is colonize the space of competence so everybody thinks okay i might not agree with what they're doing but they're competent at mm-hmm. doing it when all the evidence suggests yeah otherwise. exactly generationally as well it's interesting in my family very traditional tory voters and i would say to those family members i won't name them which ones but i would say to them why do you vote tory well because they're just sensible and they're conservative and they don't want too much change now look at what, the, that's not what they stand for at all. Even if they, yeah, even if my family didn't agree with certain ideologies within that, they were the sensible party. Yeah. Well, how on earth, post Boris Johnson, can you say that the Tory party are in any way sensible? Yeah, well, look, 15,000 pediatric operations cancelled, 7 million people, over 7 million people on the waiting list. I mean, I'm one of them. I, um, you know, I, I had uh, some acute abdominal issues two years ago, and I was referred by my GP in August 2021 to see a gastroenterologist. And to this day, I am yet to see a gastroenterologist. No, honestly, it's been, I think almost two years I've been on a waiting list just to see, um, just to see uh, a doctor. And you know, that's, that's just the reality. I think I would love for this to be some sort of horrific story that's mine alone, but it's not, I think it's- No, it's it's across the board. I know I had an appointment delayed, 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 and it, it wasn't anything wasn't an emergency in any way, but it, it ended up being 18 months until I got wow, to see yeah. a doctor, um, which is fine, but because of the nature of what it was, but it doesn't give much confidence in the service, which is sad because the NHS should be the thing we're most proud of in this country. And we still should be proud of it. It's just we shouldn't be proud of the people who are funding and organising it. Yeah, and look, recent surveys have suggested that public satisfaction within the NHS are at an all-time low. The waiting list, like I said, is over 7 million uh, strong for planned uh, care. In autumn, uh, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt promised a further £6.6 billion worth of funding for the NHS. And this issue of funding is one that is very much uh, on the lips of most uh, people across the UK. And so I spoke to Ben Zoranko, senior research economist at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, about funding around the NHS earlier today. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. The main conversation around the NHS right now seems to be around pay uh, and and the funding models for how we pay doctors and nurses. So I just wondered if you could explain a little bit more to the audience exactly how the NHS is funded. The NHS is funded out of general tax revenue. People often think that things like national insurance are specially earmarked for the NHS, but actually the NHS is paid out of all taxes, just like anything else that the government spends money on. The government sets out budgets for the health service normally several years at a time and then out of those budgets the NHS has to pay its staff, pay for drugs, pay for the running costs of its buildings and so on Um, but it's funded just like any other public service. And so why do we have this this dispute currently between junior doctors particularly and nurses and the government? Where's that disparity coming from? The root cause of the ongoing pay disputes is the fact that when the NHS had its budget set out for three years, a couple of years back, we were expecting inflation to be, you know, in the region of maybe three, maximum 4%. Clearly things haven't turned out like that and inflation has been much higher, pay demands have 
been much higher also, but the NHS budget hasn't really changed. And so the NHS is trying to is being asked to make much bigger pay awards, but without its budget being adjusted at all. So they are the government and the NHS is resisting that, hence the strikes that we're seeing across the NHS, but also the wider public sector. So we've seen um, in real terms the meanest ever uh, sort of underinvestment in the NHS uh, in the last decade. Um, and I think as a result, uh, we've seen record numbers of people leaving the NHS staff, particularly a, a report from the Institute for Government said 148,640 people have resigned from the NHS um, in the last, uh, in the 12 months from sept- uh, to September 2022. So what can the government do to, to resolve this problem? So there's clearly a, an issue with the strikes. People on mass are leaving the NHS. Why don't they just put more money in and fund the, the staff in the appropriate manner? There's clearly challenges around staff retention at the moment. I don't think anybody is denying that, particularly people citing things like work-life balance and pay as reasons for leaving. And that comes on the back of a decade or so when lots of NHS staff have actually had their pay cut in real terms. It hasn't kept pace with inflation. And so it's clearly a tricky time. If the government wanted to offer a much bigger pay award to NHS staff, it would have to provide additional funding to make that possible, and that funding would have to come from somewhere. And I think that's the crux of this, is that the government has already raised a lot of taxes. It's already borrowing quite large amounts for for peacetime and struggling to get the national debt on a falling path. And it doesn't want to raise taxes anymore. It doesn't want to borrow anymore. Therefore, it doesn't want to spend anymore. And that's the impasse here, and that's why we're not going to see a simple and easy uh, resolution to these pay disputes, because there is no easy way out. So I think what doctors and nurses would specifically say, and members of the public, are whenever we talk about investment into things that directly impact the general population, there's this conversation around what can and can't we afford. But on other issues, you've spoken about taxation, there have been, you know, one of the issues that that brought down Liz Truss's premiership was the tax cuts for the very richest in our society. And so, you know, why do you think it is that when it comes to doctors and nurses, there's the conversation around, we can't afford it, we don't want to raise any taxes, we're at our limit. But when it comes to things like tax cuts, for billionaires and, uh, you know, spending insane amounts of money on things like the Rwanda policy, that conversation never comes about. I think one interpretation of what happened under Liz Truss's government is that we couldn't afford those major tax cuts, and that's why you saw such an adverse reaction in the international money markets and so on. But on the NHS specifically, it's just a very, very big budget. From every £5 that the government spends, £1 goes on health. And so relatively small-sounding changes in the health budget can actually add up to some very big sums that would dwarf, for example, the amount spent on the Rwanda policy or the amount we might spend on some other smaller items that might be high profile, but in the grand scheme of the public finances are actually relatively modest. So with the NHS, it's just a matter of scale. And we employ hundreds of thousands of people in the NHS. And if you want to give them all a pay rise, that adds quite a lot to the government pay bill and can require some meaningful changes around tax or borrowing or cuts elsewhere to pay for it. So I think the scale is at the root of why the NHS is often at the forefront of these disputes. But is it not an issue of priority? Because you're right, the scale is high. I think uh, as a percentage of GDP, we spend the highest, uh, one of the highest on health. But many people will say that's an issue of priority. You know, we have falling mortality rates, falling infant mortality rates. We lack behind loads of countries when it comes to cancer survival, for example, waiting times, health outcomes in general. So isn't it just a case of there are priorities here that the government aren't keeping in in touch with? So for example, I hate doing this, but I'm going to do it. Um, When I'm budgeting my own for my own life, there are certain things that are at the absolute top of my priority list. Um, And so what people will argue is, yes, it's about an issue of scale. You're absolutely right. You know, as a percentage, this, the amount we spend on health is really, really high. But it's also an issue about priority. You know, if it's important to the government to bring our mortality rates up, to bring our health outcomes up, surely they would just spend the money. It absolutely is a question of priorities. But I would argue if you look back at the period since 2010 when the coalition government came in and when the austerity period began, health is about almost the only thing on which spending has actually gone up in real terms, above, over and above inflation. Almost everything else has been cut. So if you look from 2010 to 2025, the health budget will have gone up cumulatively by about 40%. 
At the same time, the education budget is being cut. The justice budget is being cut. The local government budget is being cut. So we actually have prioritised health. But we, but we haven't. See, that's the problem. When people talk about health spending going up, we look at it in compared to, for example, 1979 to 1997. Um, and it does look like it's gone up. But research, particularly from Northfield Trust, shows that changes in health spending per capita has actually gone down. So between 1979 and 1997, under a Tory government, it went up by about 2%. Uh, per capita between 97 and 2010 under labor it went up by about six percent and then since 2010 to 2021 it's gone down by 0.1 percent in real terms so we haven't actually increased spending in public health i think what the nuffield trust number does is adjusts for the age structure of the population so it's absolutely true that um there are more older people now than there were previously there are more people living for much longer with multiple complex conditions and they're more expensive to provide medical care to so once you adjust for that, spending may well have flatlined or fallen ever so slightly. But that's more a question of we're spending more, but the demands on the health service have grown even faster. It's, that's not to say that spending's been cut. It's just that perhaps it hasn't been rising quite fast enough for the NHS to maintain standards, which I think if you look at what's happened to waiting times and things like that, it's quite clear that we had a deterioration in the quality of the health service. That's not because it has less money. It's because... Demand has grown even faster than the resources available. And but surely, the, as demand grows, the investment needs to grow also. If you want to maintain the same standard of yeah. the system, absolutely. But the, then the question is, where does that come See, from? See, what I'm, what I'm trying to get to is there are political choices here. And I think the bit that frustrates many of us is often the conversation around investment into public health uh, and public services in general is that it is often framed as a inescapable reality. There's just not enough money to spend on the NHS. The nurses and the doctors are being unreasonable, that we just don't have the money to spend. The reality is when you look at per capita, when you look at real-time spending cuts, when you look at the underinvestment over decades, these are political choices. Now, you may say they're the right choices. That's but not what I'm not, saying not, at all. not you, sorry. <laughs> I should make clear, not you specifically, but people may say that that's the right political choices. Um, but they are political choices. They are political choices. And one choice that we could make as a nation is to try and raise taxes to be more to closer to what the average is across Western and Northern Europe. A lot of the countries we think of as our peers, countries like France, the Netherlands, Germany, Sweden, they all raise a lot more in tax than we do and they tend to spend quite a lot more on public services than we do. But that is a choice to be made and it's not a costless one. That would involve not just the very rich, not just a few companies, basically all of us paying a little bit more or potentially quite a lot more in tax. That's a choice, but we shouldn't pretend that this, there's some free, easy way out of this. We have to make choices. We have to make trade-offs. Yeah. And as a country, judging by the governments we seem to have elected, we don't seem to have made that choice yet, which isn't to say we won't in future. Yeah. But that is, the, that is where we are. Yeah, and there's a little bit of fear, I think, when we talk about tax. The next question is, if the investment isn't keeping up with demand, and as you say, aging population... Uh, the nature of healthcare delivery has changed. You know, we have people living longer uh, and therefore de needing um, newer medicines and all this kind of stuff has meant investment needs to go up. Uh, we saw with the Labour government the last time they came in that they had to spend significantly more than might have been the case if that investment had kept up. Is there not a worry that if this underinvestment continues or the system continues to inflate in the way that it does, the bill just goes higher and higher and higher the more we have to spend down the road to either save it or we might see the collapse of the NHS. I think it seems clear that if you do want to keep pace with those pressures you're describing from an older population and so on, we are going to have to spend more. And there is a risk that if you don't spend more and you try and hold down those pressures, eventually you have to play catch up and you end up having to inject money yeah. very quickly or you know, repeatedly doing sticking plasters and yeah. rescues. And that might not be a very efficient way to plan the health service. But I think whichever way you look at it, we are almost inevitably going to have to spend more on the NHS in future than we do today. And so the yeah. important thing is that we I think, have an honest discussion yeah, about where the money is going exactly. to Exactly. And I'm glad you've made that clear. One of the main issues is the backlog, right? The, the technology and informational services in the NHS is atrocious. We've got £10 billion backlog in maintenance, for example, that we need to clear. So quickly, last thing I'll ask you, a little bit controversial. One of my views is that there is a there is a move towards privatization of the NHS in the funding model principally. So I'm not talking about outsourcing specific services, but my view is that there is a quiet political will in Westminster to take us, if not towards an American model, certainly to a European model where we have statutory insurance-based systems as well as private insurance-based systems. 
is that something that you think might might be on the cards in the next decade or so? I personally don't think so. You do have occasional politicians call for introduction of charges, like Sajid Javid said we should be charging to go and see a GP, for example. And you have occasional people say we should overhaul the entire system and start again. I, I don't see the appetite for that. I don't see the case for that. I think more likely is we need to stick with the system we've got. Similar systems in other countries work very well, much better than ours. Think about what the appropriate level of funding is and get on with the boring background stuff that makes the system work more effectively, not tear it up and start again. Okay, thank you so much. That was Ben Zaranko, Senior Research Economist at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Thank you so much for joining us, Ben. Thank you. So, Nicola. Yes. The underinvestment in the NHS, mm. uh, as we heard there, is a political choice. It absolutely is, as is the way, the way in which the money is spent once it's given to the NHS. When you think at the moment, agency nurses, some can be paid up to two and a half grand per shift. So to say that there's simply not enough money to pay nurses, NHS nurses, we don't have it in the budget. No, it is there. It's already in the existing budget, actually. So why aren't you spending that responsibly? Ultimately, it's, it's privatisation by stealth. Yeah. This, this is what's been going on. You're absolutely right. There is this quiet will in Westminster to, to move into a different system. Well, I'm so glad you've said that. Yes. Because, listen, I, I have been saying this for almost 10 years, yeah. right? I remember saying, listen, there is a consensus in Westminster mm -hmm. that they want to move towards a private healthcare system. Yes. Not only because they have an ideological position towards, you know, free market should control everything, mm -hmm. but also because they're in the pockets of private healthcare Precisely. businesses. Look at what happened over COVID. Well, exactly. And you think that that's not going to, over over that global emergency, <laughs> how many people make yeah. billions, Suddenly millions. pub owners had... had Precisely, PPE just contracts. because they had Mac Hancock's WhatsApp. Imagine what is going to happen if the NHS... But here's the problem. We said it 10 years ago and people ridiculed us. They said we were loonies and that we were making up things yeah. and, and that that wasn't the consensus in Westminster. Here we are 10 years later and listen to what Sajid Javid, former health minister, had to say. I, having worked up close now with the, with the health service and, you know, I, I don't think the, the model of the NHS as it was set up some 70 years ago... Is, is sustainable for the future. You know, the, the world has changed and the NHS has not moved on. Okay, well, 70 years ago, people weren't living as long. So it's not the NHS that needs, that has changed necessarily or needs to be modernised. It's the fact that humans are living longer. So the NHS has to change in order, with, in order to accommodate that. And that, for me, means more public spending in social care exactly. so that you can free up beds in the NHS service. And look, for me, they are laying the groundwork for a full privatization yeah. of the NHS to move towards an insurance-based system. And this has all been a political choice yeah. from the moment that they came in in 2010, from underinvestments to real-term cuts to the, you know, the PR around the NHS, mm -hmm. the fact that it's in crisis, it's collapsing, yeah. COVID has, has exacerbated that the privatization through the back door, you know, the outsourcing, all of this comes to a head and an outgoing health minister says, we need to change the model, we need to look at Europe, we need to look at Germany, we need to look at France. And I think, look, the NHS is the jewel in the crown of this country. Absolutely. It's something that we're proud of. I went to work in America with the, with the, um, with the Bernie Sanders campaign and I used to stop people on the street and rave about a universal healthcare system free at the point of use. And I really think that that's under threat. Yeah, absolutely. What listeners need to ask themselves is this. If you wanted to privatise the NHS, say that as your sole, you're, a, you're an evil villain and your objective is to privatise the whole National Health Service, what would you have done differently exactly. over the past 10 years? And there's very little that I can imagine you would change if you went into their completely cynically going, this is my sole objective. They've done it every single step of the way. The big PR machine is in full swing and I'm not tinfoil hat kind of conspiracy <laughs> no, it's theorist. Look, if, it's true. If you, were a, if you were a private healthcare company that really wanted to bring an American or European style insurance-based system to the UK, mm -hmm. you need to create the groundwork for that to happen. You need to create the context for that to happen. Mm. This is the moment you and want. And look, coming up next, we've got a senior researcher for Reform. Reform is a think tank on public service reform. And they have released a paper on reimagining health in which they specifically talk about 
uh, changing uh, a conversation around changing the models of funding for the NHS. So Sebastian Rees will join us after this. Fubar Radio presents. Ian Johnny Vegas is in the studio. This morning, I lost 20 minutes thinking, what would I do if an ostrich came in the day? <laughs> <laughs> that's 20 minutes I'm never well, getting back. What would you do? My first instinct was, I'd try and bring it down. With? My shoulders. My <laughs> 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 upper body strength and some laces. Right, OK. Then I thought maybe I'd tie two trainers together and do a... <laughs> You know, go for the angle. That was yeah. hurt, yeah. that was yeah. hurt, yeah. Bring it down That's like an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If I did manage to capture it, whose neighbour's garden would I let it free? <laughs> Why must I get stuck with this bloody ostrich? Every Monday. Ian Boltsworth. From 4pm. Fubar Radio. Well, that little advert has got me tuning in on a Monday. Uh, joining us next, we've got Sebastian Reese, a research researcher for Reform. Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you great. Listen, I'm we've uh, you uh, Reform, has re- re- Reform has recently published a report titled Reimagining Health. Can you tell us a little bit more about the findings of this report? Yeah, so we, we published a report back in back in September last year called Reimagining Health. Um, and I suppose what it is, it's, it's our kind of grand vision about what we think the important conversations to be having in the next 10 to 15 uh, or even longer amount of years are about the future of our health system. Um, and I guess the three major findings of that report, um, for, for want of a better word, are, um, are firstly that we need to have a conversation in this country which is about health and not just about healthcare. So really about how we can keep the population as healthy as possible, how we can boost the health of the nation rather than just how we can kind of solve the, the never-ending NHS crisis. Um, the second big finding of the report is that our current kind of model of doing health, which is very much dominated by what's happening in hospitals, what's happening in specialist care, that we really need to rethink of that. And we have to think much more about what we can do closer to people themselves, in people's homes, in their communities, and with kind of primary and community care. So, so much more GP and much less hospital doctor. Um, and, and the final thing in that report is that we, we talk about the fact that we, we do need to have a conversation about health spending. Um, and that's not really about kind of shifting the fundamental way in which we fund health and social care, but it is about how we spend money in the system to make sure that we're really getting the most value out of it. Um, so thinking about how we can maximize value for patients rather than just kind of healthcare activity, um, thinking about the ways in which we can spend to maximize the efficiency of the system. So to make sure that kind of people are moving through the healthcare system as fast as possible. Um, and also thinking about ways in which we can uh, optimize the performance of things like the hospital center where we know there's a lot of kind of room to, to, to do things differently and to do things better. Um, so those are the kind of three big findings of the report. Focusing on the last one, because I think that's the one that, that jumped out to me the most when I read the report, is yep. this funding model, because we've been spoke, speaking on today's show that there is a feeling that the context is being laid out for changing the funding model of the NHS in its entirety and moving us towards a European if not Europe, if not American, at least a European sort of statutory insurance slash private insurance system. Is that something that reform is saying we need to have a conversation about? So I think we, d- we do need to have a conversation about the funding model, um, but we also have a paper that's coming out in a few weeks' time, actually, which is about kind of how we compare with other health systems. Um, and the honest truth about it is that there's not really any simple way in which you could just switch the funding model and increase the performance of the system. Um, so we know that, um, to be honest, that most of those European countries get slightly better results than the NHS does, but they also spend slightly more money on healthcare. And if you really think about a lot of those statutory insurance models, they really do for, in terms of how people experience the system, kind of look like tax funded models. So you give up a portion of your salary every month to your employer, uh, they put that money into a health fund and then pay for healthcare is relatively similar to how we do taxation. So I think that anyone kind of gearing up to, to have that debate, um, should ha- should recognize the evidence, which is that uh, that this is not a kind of quick win in terms of just shifting the funding model uh, and getting better performance, but also that those kind of alternative funding models do tend to cost a lot more than the NHS, probably not for results that are significantly better overall. Yeah, and look, so so my problem with, with this conversation around shifting funding models and looking at Europe is, A, we're not the same as Europe. We have a much older population here, and therefore the, the healthcare experiences are different and the healthcare outcomes are, will be different. But also, when we talk about this insurance-based system, um, we're, we've already seen uh, the privatization of many parts of the NHS through outsourcing. So it's still free at the point of use, but much of the services we receive have been outsourced to private providers. And this would only be presumably exacerbated 
if we go towards an insurance-based model. And the problem I have with that is that the analysis by the University of Oxford published um, in The Lancet has said that the privatization of the NHS in England through the outsourcing of services to a for-profit companies has consistently increased since 2020, 2012. And as a result, this has corresponded with significant increased rates of uh, treatable mortality, potentially as a result of the decline in quality of healthcare services. And that these, the findings of this report suggest that the further privatization of the NHS might lead to worse population health outcomes. So it sounds wonderful to say, you know, increased funding from insurance-based systems will will mean better health health outcomes. I'm sure the yeah, you know, there'll be lots of glossy uh, pamphlets by by private health providers. But the reality is, the analysis shows that further privatization equals further uh, worse population health outcomes. No. So in terms of, I, I have to pick you up on that, Ali, because I do think that the evidence on the kind of privatization of the NHS is, is is relatively weak in terms of thinking about how many more services are in private hands than they were in, in, in 2010. So, so analysis by some of the really big health charities uh, and health think tanks, so the Health Foundation and the King's Fund, suggests that that growth in kind of private use in the NHS has not really significantly increased over time and that often the, the ways in which private so sector uh, capacity is used is for NHS patients. So you will pay, say, a private hospital because they have spare capacity to carry out a treatment at NHS rates. Um, but I, I do So the analysis the by that, the University uh, of Oxford is wrong? So I think that there's there's a kind of, uh, in as with all of these kind of complicated areas, there will be certain uh, academic findings that will say that there's mixed evidence here, that there's positive, positive evidence. Well, it doesn't say there's mixed evidence. Use, that there's negative evidence. It doesn't say that it's mixed evidence. It says the findings suggest that further privatization of the NHS might lead to worse population health outcomes. It's not so mixed. I think what, once that, that particular study says that in those instances about the cases that they've modeled, and I haven't looked at that 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 actual study, but uh, in terms of the cases that they've they've looked into, that that might be uh, a finding that they've had. But in other instances, um, the, the suggestion here, is, I think, is more that um, in general, so long as care is free at the point of use and uh, it's funded through 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 the tax model, um, that we, sh we we can and should use private sector capacity when we when we want to. But on, on fundamental grounds, uh, most of this service uh, is and will remain in kind of public hands. OK, so let's talk about uh, quickly before I bring Nicola in, let's talk about your yeah. um, reimagining health paper, because yeah. the, the paper suggests that spending increases, and I'm quoting directly, spending increases have been particularly significant in recent decades, and that is projected to continue, that despite spending more, we are not achieving improved outcomes. This is at odds, again, with other organizations, particularly in our field trust, who suggest mm -hmm. uh, that we've had the meanest ever decade in real-time NHS spending in England, that per capita, adjusted for demographic changes, we've had a decrease um, in, in public health spending. So under... The Tories from 1979 to 97, it was 2%. Under Labour from 97 to 2010, it was near enough 6%. And since 2010, it's been a decrease of 0.1%. So, and that, that continues to be a £10 billion backlog, for example. Uh, so your paper suggests an increase in spending. Others are saying that's not true. So I think if you look at the kind of real terms increase on health spending over time, that the kind of period that we're talking about, which is over the last few decades, you have seen significant increases in in, in health spending across the board. Um, clearly, the 2010s decade is a, has a kind of slower rate of, of increased expenditure. It, it probably just ticks above about 1% in real terms, we think. Um, but I think the more important point to make here is what we really need to consider is, is not just kind of the spending that occurs on the NHS itself, but what happens in terms of public expenditure writ large. So one of the things that we're interested in here, for instance, is if you look at health spending, a lot of that money ends up in the hospital sector rather than in things like primary and community care, and in particular public health. So those things that are like much more preventative services tend to be the things that are on the chopping block uh, in order to save money to, to invest in kind of the more expensive acute treatment. So there's also a conversation to be had about where we spend that money uh, alongside the kind of how much money should we spend on the system in total. I thought it was really interesting what you said earlier, Sebastian, about the fact that, you know, we should be investing more in GP services rather than specifically in hospitals. And in the report, it, it said in 10 years, the number of hospital consultants has gone up 45%, yet the number of GPs has stayed roughly the same. And of course, with GPs, it's a, it's a postcode lottery as well. We know that in more affluent areas, there are more GPs per 100 than in deprived areas where that need is even greater so what you're you're talking about here is not just an increase in spending for the nhs as a whole 
but the specific areas within the NHS. Yeah, precisely. And and I suppose that's kind of comes back to the point um, that that I was making earlier, which is people can argue till the cows come home about how much money you should spend on the health system. But if you're a government in the here and now, the big question on your plate, and that will be true if a Labour government comes to power in the next few years, will be in terms of the money that we have to spend on health, um, where should we spend that money? And I think that a big part of the problem is really about where that, that money is allocated. So um, if you think about the problems that we face as a country in terms of our health, it's often about having an aging population, having people who who um, live with multimorbidity, so more than one long-term chronic condition. And those people are often best cared for by their local GP, someone who understands their health needs holistically, uh, who's known them for a long period of time, who can provide that kind of frontline access to service. But the, the model that we've built is one where often we generate more activity in the hospital setting. So we send them into the hospital setting, they, setting, they get bounced around between specialists. They often get relatively poor quality of care as a result. Um, but then the kind of, we're almost in a bit of a doom loop here, which is that the more and more that we move away from that model of kind of community-based primary care generalism, the more and more we're gonna have to spend on hospitals to do that kind of really expensive, uh, often acute crisis care, rather than solving those problems where they first emerge. So thinking about that allocation is as important as the top line, how much are we spending on health? Can I ask a stupid question to both of you? <laughs> how, of course, how, I'm sure it's not stupid. No, how is the success of the NHS measured? Because how can you possibly, and as a statistician, um, you know, how, how can you possibly know? You know, we're talking about numbers here. We're talking about pounds per person, the amount spent, etc. But how do we rate the success of the service in and of itself? Because I feel like that's open to manipulation, right, by the media, by politicians, etc. Anyone can say, oh, it's more or less successful here, there and everywhere. But ultimately, what is it? Mortality rate? Patient satisfaction? So I was, I was going to say here, like, I mean, that is actually the crucial question that you put your finger on oh, uh, wow. is, Wasn't is the conversation that we, we don't ever really have about uh, health and health spending is actually what are we trying to achieve out of the system? Mm. Um, because people will point to you and I know that kind of uh, people who, who are trying to uh, get get into get into newspapers often have a kind of incentive to say, well, look at the NHS it performs so poorly in terms of cancer outcomes or cardiovascular outcomes. Uh, Often people on the left of politics who have a similar interest will say, but look how much we protect consumers against the, the cost of high healthcare. Look how well we do on access to certain points of the system. But in actual fact, the real question is, how do we actually boost the health of the country? And there are measures that you can have for that. So um, we often use things that are called qualies or dallies, so quality adjusted life years. So how much of your life are you going to live in good health. Um, we use things like the mortality rate. So we know in this country that mortality, sorry, that that the life expectancy rate has has stopped increasing over time. Uh, and in some parts of the country is, is getting worse. We use things like morbidity. So um, how long are people sick for? What are they living with? So there's lots of different measures. But I think part of the problem is we actually haven't, this is kind of where it gets slightly philosophical, but we don't actually have that conversation. Like, what are we trying to achieve out of this? Mm. I mean, in the NHS, we're going to spend 150, 160 billion pounds on healthcare in the next calendar year. What are we actually trying to do with that money? Uh, and to me, what we're trying to do with that money is to boost the health of the nation. Um, so when we're thinking about how we should spend that money, that's the, that's the kind of metric that we should set, not how many operations do we perform or uh, how much activity is occurring in hospitals or how many appointments are, are there. It's really, is this actually making us healthier? And the evidence actually around the world seems to suggest that maybe that's not the case. Maybe it's not the case that just increasing the spending that you do on healthcare specifically, and particularly on the hospital setting, is really boosting health in the same way as, for instance, investment in housing or finding work for people or alleviating poverty or increasing yeah. the amount of green space. So it's kind of that conversation that we have about per bang for your buck, where would you want to be spending your money in order to really boost the health of the nation? And to me, it's not necessarily clear that that would be in healthcare. Yeah, look, I, and, and here's the thing. I think specifically one of the things you mentioned social care you're absolutely right you know a lot of times it's about where that care is 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 best placed uh it's not always an a e doctor that needs to treat you it's not always you know uh internal medicine uh, you can get this at a gp or a social care but for me I, I do keep coming back to the funding so what what you've just mentioned sebastian is maybe the funding doesn't need to go in a certain place but it does need to go in and that's what's gone wrong in the last 10 years and i really you know the, the, i keep coming back to this at the show it's been a political choice the amount of spending that we've had because it, i mean the reimagining uh health paper that, that sebastian reform have, have written quite rightly pointed out that labor investment under tony blair uh saw 18 week targets met we saw four-hour waiting targets met number of patients waiting for more than 13 weeks from referral to from a gp to their first outpatient attendance fell from 396,000 to 157 we met cancer wait times drastically um they they improved so increased investment equaled 
you know, a, a healthier N- a NHS. The problem I have, and this is the last question I'll have for you, Sebastian, this really bugs me, is that you also, the paper also says, however, the cash injection required to achieve this was larger in real terms than any other period in the last 30 years. And it says, as we have seen, this is not sustainable. Why is it not sustainable? Surely, if the political will is there, then the investment needed to have that boost that we had from 1997 uh, to, to meet the targets that they met can be repeated. Yeah, so I mean, I don't, I, I suppose I don't want to get um, super political here in terms of thinking about what, this what is politics what choices uncensored, Sebastian. You're, I'm going to pull exactly, it out. You're exactly <laughs> right, I suppose. Uh, you're exactly right in saying that um, this is a political choice and the amount of money that you want to spend on healthcare compared to social care, compared to education, compared to benefits, compared to de- defense mm-hmm. is, is, is the subject of political choices. I suppose one thing to say is that the fiscal environment in the, in the Blair era is clearly very different to what we're facing now. So you had an economy that's growing at three to 4%. Uh, uh, annually, we don't have that anymore. Uh, we have a situation which we but have these cuts existed. And yeah, but these cuts existed prior to the COVID economy. Before, before the the so when the economy, even when we had growth, that there was still real term cuts and underfunding of the NHS. So I think if you look at the kind of picture post-2010, you have a period where you have kind of austerity. um, And in that period, actually, the political choice for government becomes we'll keep growing the NHS in real terms uh, and remove uh, funding essentially from other areas of government. So the main one here would probably be local government as a good example. So things that provision of public health, social care, all those things that stop people needing health care in the first place, often that gets stripped away uh, in order to kind of keep money funneling into uh, into the into the NHS. So I think it's really also a question about trade-offs here, which is if you have a period in which you have less money available to you, which let's be honest, government does at the moment uh, and, and would in two or three years as well, um, where would you spend that money to, to boost health outcomes? And part of that is you would probably spend it on things that are not just healthcare and think about the trade-offs that are involved in that. But you'd also say within healthcare, where do we want to spend that money? And to me, the answer is not more hospitals and more hospital doctors. It's really good primary and community care, which gets to people early and stops expensive demand emerging in the first place. So I think we need to be careful with saying, okay, clearly there is an issue here about uh, what the top line funding rate for the system should be, but we should also take a step back and say, in actual fact, where would we want to put that funding if we had it? And even if you had a 6% increase in funding every year, the kind of things that we prioritize in the current system, I don't think would be the priorities of a future system. Why not all of the above? Why can't we have it uh, all? I think uh, you, you can't have it all, I think, partially because the political choice available to here is really about the level of taxation that people are willing to bear. Um, mm-hmm. and but not having it all, like you said, it's that political choice, right? <laughs> it's a choice not to have it well, all. Well, it it, it, insofar as it's a political choice that's often led by a kind of public will in this area, which says we don't want to increase taxes by 5 to 10% in order to continue to put more money into healthcare. I think insofar as if you wanted to go to an election and say that we're going to massively jack up everyone's taxes. Maybe not everyone. Not everyone. Kind of <laughs> Big business. That. Not everyone. I mean, I, yeah. I for one think it's perfectly reasonable yeah. to increase capital gains tax to at least the European average and, and have that fund it. But listen, Sebastian, really interesting. We're really glad uh, that you were able to join us. We have unfortunately run out of time. I'm sure we'll be able to get you back on, particularly you said you have another paper being published. So I'd love to have you yes. back on to talk about that. That was Sebastian uh, Reese, senior researcher for Reform. Reform is a think tank uh, who has published a, a recent report called Reimagining Health. Nicola, <sighs> yes. You know, I, 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 I just get so frustrated and I understand where Sebastian's coming from. But it it really is only when we're talking about things like healthcare, things like housing, the yeah. issues of we don't have enough money comes up. But when we talk about cutting capital gains tax, happy to do it. Happy to do it. Yeah, it's very frustrating that that it doesn't feel as many people are challenging the status quo. And I understand that Sebastian's you know an impartial. You know he he works on data and suggestions. He's he's not party affiliated. However, it is just accepted and not challenged that we can make these tax uh, that, that we, yeah, we, they we just, will never it just it. they just set i think they set boundaries that don't exist for others that's the problem right we have we have to live within our means when it comes to the nhs yeah but suddenly soella braverman comes up with a rwanda policy or, or pretty patel comes up with a rwanda policy Precisely. and there, there is a magic money tree to to deport immigrants yeah. okay I'm, I'm really running over <laughs> um earlier today I mean, we've spoken about healthcare we've spoken about from to the institute of fiscal studies we've spoken about reform 
But let's hear from the doctors, the people on the ground, on the front line, what it's really like. So earlier today, Nicola and I spoke to Dr. Amy Atwater, who's an A&E doctor in the Midlands and a committee member for the Doctors Association of UK. And I asked her, what is morale like in the NHS right now? In the 12 years I've been a doctor, I've never seen so many doctors disheartened, having problems with mental health suffering burnout and you know even to the point of an increase in a rate of doctors committing suicide the pressures we're under at the moment everybody is really struggling we're seeing more patients than ever uh, and but you know hospital doctors and gps but it feels to be honest like we're drowning in quicksand and that there's just nothing we can do about it. And, and what is that? So you talk about the pressures. Could you kind of illuminate listeners a little bit? What are those pressures that you're facing on a day-to-day basis? Mm-hmm. You know, what has necessarily changed or what mm-hmm. what is driving um, this mm-hmm. crisis? It was never like this 10 years ago, five years ago. Um, you know, people were happy. There was camaraderie. Personally, in the emergency department, it's like a war zone. The noise, the overcrowding, um, being trying to get anything done is so difficult. The, there's patients that are sat there. We're having a 12-hour wait. There's a 100-year-old in the, in the waiting room sat there for that long. And, you know, we just feel it's not good enough. The patients are waiting so long. But by the time we see them, they're, they're, they're really unwell. And we could have helped if we could have seen them earlier. There's, there's no space to see anybody. You know, we're, we're working in departments where it's catering for 40 patients and there's 120 patients waiting. I've had patients die in an ambulance, which has been waiting for hours, you know, which potentially could have been, could have been, avoided and patients dying in the corridor while other people look on in horror you know and although it's a system failure it feels like it's our fault i was gonna say amy um just obviously you've described some absolutely horrific um circumstances there It, it sounds like obviously morale is low enough as it is just given the situation that you're in how does it feel that on top of that so much of the media seem to demonize doctors and nurses and even patients i I read almost every week that um some corners of the press demonize patients who are using a and e too frequently Mm -hmm. and suggesting that is it as if that's the problem whereas actually it's surely to do with with long-term understaffing and underfunding from a personal point of view, when I've treated patients in A&E, um, even the ones that have had a long wait have actually said to me, you know, we, we support you. Um, we know it's not your fault. And I feel I feel that a lot of patients, when, when they're there with us, are on our side. Um, although, obviously, we do have some that get very angry that they've had to wait for so long um, and don't really understand that that isn't our fault. With regards to the media, I think there's, um, I think there is a divide, personally. Uh, The media that is negative, um, to be honest, I try in my mind to ignore it. I know some doctors get very, very upset by it, but some papers and some some media can be extremely sensationalist and they're just trying to make a story out of it um, rather than actually listening and, and and talking about the truth so amy sometimes more recently it seems to me like there's been a little bit of an attempt to play doctors and nurses off against each other um is that something that you've seen not not by patients obviously but but within the media and the conversations around healthcare right now? Because obviously uh, there's issues around pay and all these conversations, mm-hmm. and not to get into those specific issues, but you obviously work incredibly close with nurses every day. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in the media, it mm-hmm. seems like they're trying to play doctors and nurses off against one another. Is that something you found? And how does that make you guys feel, both as doctors and, uh, and the nurses you work with? 
Personally, I have found all the nurses I've worked with, most doctors have the utmost respect for nurses. We know how important they are. And, and we feel that they they deserve a better working conditions, better pay. From the nurses that I've spoken to and that, that you know, social media plays a big part in this, that I feel they're also supporting the doctors also. I think the thing is, is the media does try to create a divide sometimes. Yeah, and so one last question. Um, might be a... Might be a difficult one I don't know if I was a young person and I wanted to become a doctor in England would you recommend that I do it you know I find that a really difficult question uh personally when I became a doctor the loans were there was there was a much larger NHS bursary the loans for to you know for tuition fees were one thousand pounds a year and working conditions were much, much better. If they had their hearts set on it and there was nothing else they wanted to do, then, you know, I would support them fully. But at the same time, I would make them aware of the severe difficulties they would face. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Amy Atwater, uh, a doctor in the Midlands and um, a committee member for the Doctors' Association UK. Thank you so much for joining us uh, and thank you every th- for everything that you continue to do. Now we have Dr. Chanel Smith, a junior doctor based in Bristol. Um, uh, she is working in East Lancashire Hospital NHS Trust and is also an ambassador for the Captain Tom Foundation and was featured in a children's book honouring Captain Tom. Chanel, thank you so much for joining us. I think you are in a hospital as we speak. I am. I am indeed. Can't get any <laughs> realer than this. Listen, we, we've we been talking a little bit about um, morale in the NHS. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about where you and your colleagues are at, how tough things are or aren't at the moment, um, and what life is like as a junior doctor? Yeah, absolutely. I think I can only speak for myself and everyone has a very different experience, but, you know, arguably there are some challenges facing the NHS at the moment, and I think we're all aware of that. Um, you know, I think what's crucial to say is that the NHS can be really rewarding, but it does have its challenges as well. Um, and I think, you know, we have long days, um, really um, irregular schedules, we work day shifts, we work night shifts, um, you know, it can really disrupt your work-life balance. Um, and because of that, I think a lot of people are, are prone to burnout. Um, and I'd say that's probably one of the m- biggest issues that we have um, with, with some of my colleagues and, you know, with myself in the past is, is mainly coping with that burnout and the high pressure stressed environment that we do have, um, making really important life and, and death decisions. Um, and, you know, that can really lead to both physical and both mental exhaustion. Um, I think... Fortunately, you know, we do have really motivated people within the NHS and I can say for myself that I do love what I do. I do love being a doctor and as hard as it is um, and as tiring as it can be, you know, it is something that we do because we love it. Um, It is a challenge, but I think a lot of people do thrive in that environment and the constantly evolving arena that we're in, you know, being at the forefront of medical advances, constantly learning. it's, It's really fascinating to be in this arena. Um, so I think while there are challenges, you know, it's important to also try and, and keep a, a sense of optimism that yep. there are a lot of people that do love what they do um, and are really motivated to, you know, keep the NHS, you know, functioning and, and keep it as a, as a shining example of healthcare. Yeah. So we've spoken today to Reform, which is a think tank that's done a paper on healthcare, and one of the things that they say bothered me because I think it it kind of shifts or skews public opinion on what life is like specifically for a junior doctor. So they've said that UK doctors earn more than three times the national average wage and that NHS consultants earn between £84,000 and £114,000 a year. Now that's true, but the reality is that's not what junior doctors earn. And the problem I find is a lot of members of the general public, because of things like this, think that you know doctors as a whole get paid this enormous amount of money and have this really cushy life. And I have a lot of junior doctors who are friends and colleagues who I know that's not their life. So could you give people a little bit more of a realistic understanding of what life is like for you guys, the hours you work, the amount that you get paid and the difficulties that come with that? Yeah, absolutely. 
I think, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions um, and, you know, perhaps stereotypes about what it's like to be a doctor, perhaps that it's some sort of glamorous lifestyle that we lead. Um, you know, I wish that was the case. Unfortunately, you know, our day to day is, you know, very much um, a lot of admin tasks, really. Uh, we do um, have the occasional times, you know, we're doing CPR or there's acute unwell patients in the ward and we have to address those as we see that. But the majority of our day to day would actually be, you know, doing paperwork, um, you know, sorting out blood referrals, um, sending all sorts of, of referrals and doing admin tasks, really. Um, and that takes away from time that we can see with patients, which can be really frustrating. Um, you know, in terms of our work um, and pay, what the realities are is that we've spent five to six years training to be a doctor. Um, we've acquired thousands of pounds of debt. Um, and actually what junior doctors are paid as a starting salary is 14 pounds an hour. Um, now there has been a lot of comparisons with PRET, um, yeah. as we do know, the comparisons between baristas and what they're getting. And in no way are we undermining baristas. Mm -hmm. You know, they should well within their rights, you know, well done to PrEP for honoring and, you know, giving their staff what they deserve to be paid. And we commend them for that. I think what doctors are asking is to also be valued in the same way. And, you know, I think the NHS has come under a lot of strain in the recent years, you know, particularly because um, of the COVID pandemic. And I think people are feeling perhaps like undervalued and not appreciated for the work that they're putting in. I think and, it's, a, it's a question of right and wrong, isn't it? You know, yeah, absolutely. I understand the comparison with PrEP because it's easier for people, I think, to understand pay when you, when you place it against something yeah. else. But the question is really, someone who's gone to medical school for five or six years, who may be working 16 hours in an A&E, who should they be going to a food bank? No. You know, do you expect the doctor that has your life in their hands, who's working 15, 16 hour shifts, who's studied for probably by that point, 15, 16 years, mm. should they be on 14 pounds an hour? Should be they were working at a food bank? It's a disgrace. And I use that PRET example. And thank you for saying that, Chanel. You know, we're not saying by using that example that, you know, you should pay people in PRET less. But I, I used that as an example to, a, let's just say, a, a right wing commentator recently. And he said, well, they still get end up getting paid more per year because they work 16 hour shifts. And I was like, what part of that do you think is appealing? The fact that, okay, you're getting 14 pounds an hour, but you earn more per year than somebody who works in prep because you're exhausted, because every waking second of your day is spent at work. Can you imagine working a 16 hour shift in prep? Well, do you know what it is? It's also a question, and uh, Chanel, I wonder if you can speak about this. Do they stay in the industry long enough to earn that money? You know, we've seen 148,000 people have resigned from the NHS in the 12 months up to September 2022. Are people leaving, Chanel? Unfortunately, you know, they are leaving. And I think this is the problem. We're not able to retain doctors. We're training doctors, but people are, are maybe feeling disillusioned um, by the system at the moment and, and how they're being treated and just the chronic understaffing, the chronic underfunding, you know, Arguably, we're very highly educated, um, highly intelligent individuals, and they do have options to train elsewhere. And places like Australia, New Zealand, they offer a lot better conditions to work in. They do offer higher pay. Um, and realistically, people are taking those options um, and they are leaving the NHS. And we're losing really great doctors, you know, really well-trained, really fantastic doctors. And I can vouch for that because some of my colleagues are so inspirational and, you know, um, great at what they do. And, you know, it's a shame that we're seeing that people are leaving. And I think a lot of people um, wouldn't want to leave. Um, they're very happy to stay in the UK is where a lot of our families are. But a lot of people are feeling like they don't have a choice. Um, and ultimately, um, you know, that feeling of, of being undervalued and wanting, you know, a better life for themselves. And, you know, it is about pay as well. And, and ultimately, if you can't retain your doctors, they, they will leave. And yeah. If, if people want to stay in the UK, I'm guessing that what a lot of doctors and nurses are doing is then taking on private work at the same time to supplement exactly. their income. And then, of course, they're doing exactly the same job, but via a private company. And do they take home 100 percent of those of, of the pay that they get for that day? Do they? Heck. Yeah. Listen, we, we, we unfortunately have run out of time. But before we, we leave you, Chanel, very quick question. We asked um, uh, an earlier doctor about whether she would advise young people to get into the healthcare sector to become doctors, uh, she couldn't say yes. 
what mm. would you what advice would you give to young people in a very short maybe three four words would you advise people get become doctors like you did it's a really hard decision and it's a, it's a personal one and i think there are a lot of challenges that the nhs is facing however you know it is a really rewarding awarding career and personally i couldn't see myself doing anything else but arguably there are you know other jobs that would arguably more be more satisfying and would would have yeah. better conditions and better pay so, Unfortunately, uh, that's really not another resounding yes. So for I all know. the rewarding and amazing work that you do, we've had two doctors today who haven't been able to give us a resounding yes to what was one of, you know, one of the most important, rewarding, respected, respected uh, jobs in our society. Chanel, thank you so much for joining us. We have reached the end of the program. Thank you to everybody who has been listening. A huge thank you to my superstar co-host, Nicola Thorpe. Thanks for having me. Um, who you can catch on Twitter and Instagram and all the good social channels. Follow us uh, on Instagram at Politics Uncensored uh, and on Twitter, I am A.R. Milani. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you to Nicola, to Ben, to Sebastian, to Amy, to Chanel and to all of you for listening. I'll catch you next week. Salams.